Hey there, podcast listener. I just wanted you to know that the John D. Sperry podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. With your Audible membership, you can download titles and listen offline anytime and anywhere. Download the free app onto smartphones, both Apple and Android. Listen across devices without losing your spot. If you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. I've been using Audible for about a decade now, and I couldn't be more satisfied. I love Audible. I've listened to audiobooks, dramas, podcasts. To get started with a one-month free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast. That's audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast. That gets you one month free, which includes a free book credit, two free Audible originals, and access to their massive library of resources. One more time, audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast to get started with Audible with that free month. Welcome back to the John D. Sperry Podcast. Today we're getting into chapters 18 and 19. This is essentially part two of the book. I hope you will join me after the reading of these chapters so we can talk a little bit about how the book has changed. Two Years Later Chapter 18 Jocko rang the chime to enter his master's bedroom. Knowing that the ringing itself was simply a formality... He would enter the room whether he was invited or not. It was the nature of his relationship to the man whom he managed, both personally and with regard to business affairs. Alan Basra was a wealthy Tremulon prince, only 18 years old, barely a man by some planet's standards, and Jocko knew three things for certain about his employer. First, he was not Tremulon. Tremulons were xenon breathers, and his master did not require a xenon supplement to survive on Karamina. Secondly, he knew that his master's name was not Alan Basra. And lastly, it had become quite apparent that his master was such a troubled youth that he had, in some ways, grown mature beyond his years, and in many other ways was still just a boy. Come in, groaned Prince Basra as the door was already sliding open, a beam of light slicing across his eyes, causing him to recoil. Mr. Basra, there is a call for you. Jocko said as he headed for the closet to lay out his master's outfit for the day. 
Alan sat up and stared his empty gaze at his affairs manager and the only friend he had on the planet. Oh, thank you, Jocko. I'll take it in the den. I've already prepared it for you. She said she only has a few minutes, Jocko said softly as Alan rolled out of bed, threw on an elegant robe, and wrapped the belt around himself with a single slipknot. His first few steps were a weary amble, a result of an injury he told the locals came from a game of Rooney and football, a brutal sport that involved both sticks and full contact. After a little warming up, the limp was hardly noticeable. Jocko led Alan toward the den, a small room just off the bedroom. Since his arrival on Karamina two years prior, Alan hadn't slept much. Jocko was fully aware of the life his master had left, a life that was oppressive, much the way all the princes of the galaxy felt when they arrived to hide away from their worlds. But Alan was different. There was no freedom in his existence, just as there was no wealth in his past. He was a man enslaved by his thoughts and his decisions. Regret was his constant companion. Jocko pulled a comfortable, ergonomically fashioned chair away from the bank of data screens. Alan sat down, facing a large monitor, on which was displayed a passcode entry screen for subspace communication. He entered his personal passcode, and one of the most comforting and familiar faces he had always known appeared, smiling back at him, just as glad to see him as he was to see her. Jocko knew the girl. She had arrived with Alan and had been the one to interview and hire Jocko. She was Mr. Basra's only real relationship, but she had been away for nearly 18 months on a diplomatic mission of sorts. Despite Alan and Jocko's close friendship, her absence had been difficult for the master of the house, but her calls, which in Jocko's mind were not frequent enough, always gladdened the manager's heart because he was able to see his truest friend smile even for a few moments. The girl on the screen was his young master's anchor, and for that he loved her calls. Hello, Prince Basra. The girl said with a pleasant smile as she initiated the conversation. Oh, please don't call me that, Zade. I already can't get Jocko to call me by my real name. He's so stubborn sometimes. Zade giggled. No, Ladin, he's not stubborn. He's loyal. To me, aren't you, Jocko? She said with another giggle. You know me too well, Madame Zade, replied Jocko as he bowed out of the room so that his employer might have some privacy. Please tell me you're coming back. Ladin said disconsolately as he rubbed the remaining sleep from his eyes. I'm sorry, Ladin. I can't come back. Not yet, Zade replied. But it won't be long now, I promise. Is Jocko treating you well? Jocko smiled from the other room as he arranged his master's clothes. Ladin looked out the door and smiled. No, he's great. He's just a little too much like a mother. He wakes me up at reasonable hours and makes sure I get proper meals. It's annoying. Ladin said with a weak smile, catching a glimpse of Jocko moving about his bedroom. Good, then he's doing exactly as I would do, Zade retorted playfully. She always knew Jocko was listening, but she also knew he would never presume to include himself in Ladin's private conversations without invitation. He was a proper gentleman. But seriously, Ladin continued, having abandoned his humor. How soon is soon? I need to get away. You, me, Jocko, we can all go on a long trip somewhere. Soon. Zade emphasized. I promise, she said, her compassion for her friend very palpable through the feed. But if I leave now, it may undo all that I've accomplished. Ladin sighed. Does that king, what's-his-name, know you're a... Zade smiled cunningly. His name is Harayar, she said. And no, he doesn't have a clue. Her eyes turned somewhat sad. Father was a magician. Ladin nodded. 
There was silence for a moment. So, is this why you called? To get my hopes up that you'd be coming back soon? Lydon said sarcastically. The smile returned to Zade's face. No, she said casually. I was just seeing if you were still avoiding the parade of brides. Lydon scoffed at the insinuation. No, I'm not avoiding it. I'm just not doing it. Lydon replied belligerently, showing the still-present little boy inside of him. Come on, Ladin, you know that one of the major provisions of the agreement between all expatriate royals and the Karaminan government is that you're obligated to follow the Karaminan decree of morality. I know, but it's stupid. I don't want to get married. But you're over the age of adulthood. You were old enough when you got there, Zade pressed, and Ladin wanted to terminate the conversation. But I don't want to get married. I don't care what the deadline is. It's your 19th birthday. Zade chimed in, as if Ladin didn't know. You only have a few months, and the parade is this month. If you wait until the next one, they will evict you. Are you just looking out for me? Because if you are, you can stop. I'm 18. I can take care of myself. Both Jocko and Zade scoffed at the same time from different solar systems. Yes, I am looking out for you, Zade replied with authority. You need to move on. You need to be happy. And getting married is supposed to make me happy? Ladin replied, defeated. Look, Ladin, there's a very lovely girl from this planet who has joined the parade. She is beautiful and adventurous. I want you to meet her. Then I want you to bid for her. Take her out and see if sparks fly. I think she's very much your type. Gah, Zade. I can't. Not now. It's too soon. Then when, Ladin? When will it be time? You have this parade, and that's it. You might have one more next year if you appeal for an extension. The Karaminans don't want to lose you as much as you don't want to leave. But they will evict you. Trust me. I know, Zade, I know. But it's... Ladin sank backward in his chair, his gaze suddenly distant. Ladin, Zade said much more compassionately. You need to let her go. Ladin clenched his fist and heaved a heavy sigh. I know, he grumbled. Earth is in ruin. And it's all his fault. Pursuing her would only ruin you too. No, Zade, it's all my fault. I took the lamp from all of them, and now they do nothing but fight. She's a casualty of that decision. When was the last time you looked her up? Zade asked. Not since Earth went off the grid a year ago. He thinks by hiding himself, by preventing transparency, he can intimidate the rest of the galaxy. He's a fool, Ladin proclaimed, showing the mature man inside of himself. But the Tellarides won't put up with him for long, and neither will the Union. He paused for a moment and stared blankly at the monitor in front of him. She's just a casualty. Let her go. Give the parade a chance, Zade nudged, and Ladin sank even deeper into his chair. Her name is Gisela. She's humanoid, and she's gorgeous. Here's her picture. The image of a beautiful girl with slightly pointed ears popped up onto the screen, and Zade was right. The girl was very attractive but she wasn't what Ladin wanted. I won't be able to talk to her. We speak two completely different languages, Ladin replied, dejected. I've taught her some Bagadite, and you'll have the universal communicator. You'll be fine. Please, Ladin, you need a distraction. Ladin sat and stared at nothing in particular for a good long while, thinking only of what he could have had, what he still wanted. But deep inside of him, a logic center confirmed Zade's point. She was right. She was always right. He needed a new and lasting perspective. 
he would at least try. Okay, I'll look her up, Ladin said. I'll go to the parade. It's in two weeks, right? It's this weekend, Zade repeated with a smile of relief. And remember, her name is Gisela. You won't regret it. I'm sure I won't, Ladin grumbled. Excellent. I have to go. Remember to be a gentleman, bid high, and she loves flowers. Ladin raised his eyebrows. Got it. Be nice, pay a lot, and take dying plants. Good luck, Zade said gleefully. I'll call you in a month. Bye, Ladin replied, and with no more ado, Zade was gone. For a moment, Ladin sat and stared at the spinning logo of the carrier service that had delivered Zade's message. With a couple of taps on his remote data mod, a video came up on the main data screen. It was the image of Simic, frozen in the middle of speaking, a video bookmarked in the moment of one specific revelation. I'm your grandfather, Ladin, the old man said, and Ladin had heard him say it hundreds of times. The strongest emotion he ever felt with regard to Simic was regret, and it haunted him daily. He missed the old man. Ladin froze playback and sighed sorrowfully. The words were like daggers to his heart. He reinitiated playback. I'm sorry I never told you, but when your father was linked to the lamp, I knew that I wasn't safe from Malik's wrath, and I couldn't claim you as my grandson. Ladin advanced playback. Until it was safe. It was two years before I could come back, and when I found you, you were in the city orphanage, and, to my everlasting regret, I left you there telling myself it was for your own safety. That's what I told myself, that Malik couldn't be made aware that you lived. Ladin had memorized Simic's words. The video told the history of his parents, of their murder at the hands of the Sultan. Ladin's father, a royal security technician, found the lamp during a reconfiguration of the Telluride security network. It had been dormant, seemingly unused for decades, if not centuries. Simic surmised that after the Tellurides had gained their initial control over Earth, something had happened to those who knew about the lamp, and it lay forgotten until Ladin's father found it. Once he had accessed it, he simply inquired of the program what it was, and it told him all there was to know about how it was used to overtake Earth. Wanting to expose it, Ladin Sr. told Malik about it, but the revelation only caused Malik to grow greedy. He wanted the software for himself. When Ladin's father refused to steal it, Malik arranged the accident, sacrificing his ability to get the lamp in order to keep it a secret from the Tellurides until he had another opportunity to steal it. The irony that it was stolen from Malik by the son of the very man who refused to give one man such power was not lost on Ladin. It made him cringe with even more regret. The story of his parents and the lamp had once fueled a fire of revenge in Ladin, but now it only emphasized the void left by loneliness. Malik had traveled down the chute of Ladin's emotions from the peak of hatred to the valley of complete apathy. Certainly, the name riled his sensibilities, but it was barely an ember of its original incarnation. He would have forgotten Malik, forced him out of his life forever, if not for the one thing that kept his thoughts on Earth. The one thing that occupied his thoughts more than his missing family. The one person who might be able to restore his happiness and fill that family-shaped hole in his heart. Simic's face on the data mod was quickly replaced with a new one, an image of the only girl Ladin had ever loved. Perhaps love was a strong word, but Kimber Malik was the only human for which he held any deeply emotional desire. Her green eyes blazed out at him from between her burgundy locks. 
the last picture available of her on the nets before Earth went dark. With a huff of depressed resignation, he deactivated the mod and stood up from his chair. Walking out of the den and back into his bedroom, he threw off his robe and called for Jocko, who re-entered the room with an exuberant, Yes, Mr. Basra? Jocko, we're going to the Parade of Brides. I need something to wear. A broad smile spread across Jocko's face. Yes, sir, he responded even more exuberantly. I have just the thing right here. Ladin set the water temperature mixture for his shower, sighing heavily. I hate my life, he said as the glass shower door closed around him with an electric whir. Ladin and Jocko sat side by side in Ladin's hovering limousine, its retractable roof locked overhead so that nothing could be seen inside the vehicle. Jocko had tried to persuade his master to leave it open, that it would be a sign of opulence and goodwill for others to see him, but it was no use. Ladin did not want to be seen. The vehicle was not something he enjoyed. It was a simple conveyance, a thing that got him from place to place. Every few months he would buy a new one, and every few months he rarely rode in it. The trip to the parade grounds was the longest he'd taken since arriving on Karamina. Okay, so tell me how this goes, Ladin said. I go into the parade grounds, and they introduce me to the entire place, then what? Then they will take you into the mixer, an enormous open-air arena, where each of the brides is presented in various kiosks around the arena, where you will be able to examine each of them individually in search of the right bride. If one catches your interest, you can request a personal introduction. Or, as is our situation, you may simply use the kiosk to request an introduction with a specific bride by name. Then I get to meet her face-to-face? Correct. You will be directed to a specific atrium, and she is brought out to you. You are allowed up to 30 minutes to mingle, usually under the supervision of her guardian or steward. You mean someone will be there looking over our shoulders the whole time? Jocko nodded apologetically. Yes. Okay, fine. Then what? Ladin replied dismissively. Tomorrow night, you will be given the chance to bid on your bride, to win her as yours. Ladin shook his head. I really don't want to do this, he said, staring out the window of his luxurious hover car. The limousine pulled down a long drive lined with bright, sparkling lights until it reached the entrance of the parade grounds. Just the entrance redefined extravagance. Everything shined and glistened with the gleam of jewels and elegance. Music could be heard from inside the grounds, even through the closed windows of the limousine. Valets and ushers waited outside as the car pulled up to the arena. All right, let's get this over with, Ladin said as he asked for his xenon breather mask that covered most of his face under the eyes. It was his security system, his disguise. He might have escaped Earth, but that didn't mean he had escaped the reach of Haslan Malik. Ladin's face had been plastered all over the known galaxy for 12 months before Earth fell into oblivion. He couldn't risk being recognized. In public, he was a Tremulon Xenon breather. The mask was supposed to be his breathing supplement, a deliberate decision since it was a full face mask over the nose and mouth, and its ornate decoration was passable as one belonging to one of the wealthiest men in the galaxy. Jocko exited the vehicle and quickly but sophisticatedly walked around the car while Ladin affixed his disguise. As soon as it was on, Jocko opened the door. An usher was there next to Jocko, ready to greet Ladin in the Karaminan language, a tongue Ladin had almost mastered in his two years on the lush and vibrant planet. 
Good evening, Mr. Boswell. Welcome to the parade, the usher said as Ladin exited the vehicle. Thank you, Ladin replied with a customary tremulon bow. As he rose again, he tugged at the bottom of the collarless jacket he wore and straightened the hooded cape around his neck, and he and Jocko headed for the main gate. This is stupid, Ladin muttered in Bagadite. Nonsense, sir. This is going to keep me employed for at least another year, Jocko replied with a teasing smirk. The entryway to the parade grounds was made of four towering arches that reached at least ten stories high and reflected spotlights in every color of the rainbow. The main foyer was a kidney-shaped space bedecked with all manner of fine art and furniture from around the galaxy. Aliens from all over mingled quietly as they sat on elegant couches and in soft chairs covered in rare galactic fabrics. A pair of Tellurides, or Sanurites, Ladin couldn't tell the difference since their species both came from the same planetary system, were chatting animatedly near a long, darkened glass wall that had a seam in it where it separated into two doors. This way, sir, Jocko said as he placed one hand on Ladin's back and nudged him toward the seam. Ladin nodded and adjusted his mask. He just prayed there were no other Tremulons present. His proficiency with their language was in serious disrepair. But then Tremulons were rarely seen outside of their planet. No other species in the known galaxy breathed Xenon, and it was not ideal to wear a full, airtight face mask everywhere. In almost complete silence, the two mighty glass doors slid open upon Ladin and Jocko's approach. Just inside stood a female greeter dressed in an elegant and revealing evening gown made of a sheer pink material. Her flowing hair cascaded in a luxurious fall of pink and green strands, and every inch of her visible skin, except her face, was bejeweled with pink and soft green stones. From head to foot, she was a living ornament of the apparent color motif of the parade. Good evening, Mr. Basra. Welcome to the Parade of Brides, she greeted them in a tinkling, sensual voice. The girl was a siren, one of the public relations and linguistic gifts to the galaxy. Sirens were genetic anomalies of species interbreeding. Some of the more mystical races of aliens claimed that sirens were magical gifts to their parents, while the more grounded species explained it as a chromosomal abnormality. Either way, sirens were an asset to the galaxy, because their unique social gifts allowed them to moderate any event, carry on a conversation in multiple languages, and, regardless of their gender, they were always beautiful. The lovely girl, barely a woman, pinned a pair of green and pink Vitruvian orchids to Ladin's coat. The smell was intoxicating, but he wasn't entirely sure if it was the flowers or the girl. Your liaison for the evening will be Jocko, she said, gesturing to Ladin's life manager. And I believe you have registered to see a specific bride, Gisela? She smiled professionally. Yes, that is correct, Jocko answered before Ladin could respond for himself. Excellent. The lovely bride's kiosk is Alpha 12, which you will find in the Sufon Atrium, just beyond the runway. The girl smiled again very pleasantly and motioned the men in. Thank you cordially, Jocko said with a slight bow. Lydon somewhat clumsily followed suit with a bow, then trailed Jocko in. Once outside of the young siren's persuasive attraction, Lydon finally took in the enormity of the space that the parade occupied. It was completely open air, no ceiling over the entire building, just dark sky decorated with celestial lights with two of the three moons of Karamina visible in the night sky. There were splashes of all manner of alien greenery accenting every colored wall and stone pillar throughout the expansive scene. 
Clusters of aliens sat around small tables that displayed holographic projections of beautiful women, no doubt the bride catalog. And at the center of each entourage sat a man whose dress and appearance was just a step above the rest of the party, most likely the prospective groom. Should I have brought more people with me? Ladin said as he looked around. You are no ordinary prince, Mr. Bazarat. Remember, you have no friends, Jocko replied with a wink. Except for me, of course. Ladin glared at his manager's teasing eyes. Thanks for the reminder. Maybe I should take that number down to an even zero. Oh, you wouldn't want to do that, sir. You're no good on your own. Ladin took in a few more of the royal parties around the grounds. You've got that right, he said, feeling completely overwhelmed. As they walked through the exact middle of the arena, Ladin noticed a raised platform made of glass and white stone. It was lighted from beneath and stood less than a meter off the ground. Is that the runway the siren was talking about? Ladin asked. Precisely, answered Jocko. That is literally the parade. During the bidding, the brides are brought out here, one at a time, and paraded for the grooms. During their walk, the grooms line the runway and make their bids using their individualized pins. The grooms are not allowed to interact with the brides once the bidding has begun. Doesn't it seem sort of demeaning to bring them out here like livestock to be bid on? Ladin asked. Well, it is ultimately the bride's own choice, as she is by no means bound to the highest bidder, although her father or handler may have a significant persuasion in that department. Ladin eyed the runway and the rows of reserved booths as Jocko explained the bidding process. It felt odd to Ladin that one of the booths likely had his name on it. The bids are to show each bride what she is worth to a suitor, and the bride doesn't make the final parade if she hasn't received at least one mark of interest. In the end, this is a lavish extravaganza for the brides and a time for local princes to peacock around with their peers. Seems pretty stupid just to get a date, Ladin remarked. It all depends on your point of view, I suppose, Jocko stated. Yeah, I suppose, Ladin replied. The Sufan Atrium is just this way, sir, Jocko said as they approached a wide bank of archways at the back of the arena. Jocko led Ladin to the last archway on the right. As they arrived in front of it, they saw that beyond the arch was a secluded space wrapped in plant life that created a functional wall. Inside the internal room were 12 transparent kiosks that stood two meters high, an image of a different bride smiling and turning on each. Examining all the brides, Ladin understood what Jocko meant when he once said that female was relative to the species. Though they were all humanoid, two arms, two legs, one head, they were by no means all easily distinguishable into specific genders. There were the obvious females that, apart from color, resembled human women, the same gentle curves and feminine delicateness, while others were more androgynous, even masculine by human standards. There were a few other men in the room examining the kiosks. On a couch near one of the walls sat a bride with what Ladin assumed was a prospective groom. They were talking quietly, and he observed their conversation for a moment, when suddenly the bride threw herself at the groom and they began kissing quite aggressively. Ladin spun himself around, stunned by the suddenness of it. Well, there's no secret who he's bidding on, Ladin whispered to Jocko. Not necessarily, sir. Many of the brides like to see how they fit with their grooms. He raised his eyebrows at Ladin, who shot his own stunned expression back at Jocko. You mean they just go at it right here? Within certain limits, Jocko replied before Ladin could become completely disturbed. Don't forget, the Karaminans are a somewhat prudish people. Right, 
Ladin replied dubiously as he caught another glance at the slurping couple. Gisela is kiosk A12. That would be this one over here, sir, Jocko said as he walked over to the last of the kiosks in the atrium. Ladin didn't need to examine very closely the image on the glass to realize it was Zade's girl. She was indeed beautiful. Her hair was bright orange and her eyes a deep, rich blue. Her teeth gleamed under pink lips, and apart from her subtly peaked ears, she could have passed quite easily for human. Ladin caught Jocko examining Gisela quite thoroughly. I do say, sir, if she proves not to be your cup of tea, you could always sponsor me, he said, shooting a teasing eyebrow wag at his employer. That sounds like a great idea, Ladin replied. Why don't you do this, and I'll go get a drink and then go home, Ladin said as he turned enthusiastically back toward the main entrance. I'm sorry, sir, but as much as I'd benefit from such a situation, it is unfortunately not exactly permissible at this stage in the game, he said, steering Ladin back toward the kiosk. Ladin sighed. Okay, what do I do? Just sign in and wait, Jocko said, making the process sound overly simplistic. Ladin examined the kiosk and found the sign-in panel. He punched in his identification pin and submitted it. The image of Gisela changed to a confirmation message and a picture of a pink and green floral design. When there was no further instruction on the screen, Ladin looked at Jocko and said, Now what? Now you wait, sir, Jocko said. Why don't we have a seat? I'd rather stand, Ladin said, and he went back to the archway to look out into the arena. People passed all around him. Men and brides could be seen talking, walking, kissing, and just holding each other. They all, without exception, seemed to be having a wonderful time. It wasn't the purgatorial sentence of guilt and loneliness to which Lydon felt bound. Wonderful though Zade's girl might be, she wasn't what he wanted. The woman he wanted would never submit to something so pompous and flashy. She was a human half-breed. She had grown up in humility to a speciesist father. As Malik's daughter, she would never be in such an arena on parade. It was more likely that she was a victim of her father's xenophobia, living a secluded and abused existence on the desolate wasteland that was Ladin's home planet. As the throngs of beautiful people coursed by, every girl was Kimber. In each face sprang her dazzling emerald eyes. Her telluride features stood out most, the way her jaw rounded softly up to her human lips, covered in pink lip shade. From girl to girl, Ladin's fantasy bounced but not one of the dolled-up brides was Kimber. She wasn't there. Until she was. Kimber? Ladin said softly to himself as his eyes landed on the moving profile of a bride as she walked by. She disappeared into the crowd, but Ladin was certain he had seen her. He released his hold on the archway and took a step out into the passing crowd when he felt a hand suddenly grip him by the arm. Mr. Basra, your bride awaits. Jocko whispered in Ladin's ear, and Ladin turned to look at his only friend in the planetary system. Yes, I think you're right, Ladin said, his eyes still in a daze as he stared into the crowd of people. Chapter 19 Mr. Basra, Jacko called insistently as Lydon charged through the crowded arena. Lydon ignored him. Mr. Basra, he called more forcefully and pulled at Lydon's arm. Alan, please, 
Ladin ignored him again. Ladin, stop! Jocko bellowed and Ladin halted as his true name rang in his ears. What? Ladin replied angrily as he turned around to face his friend. What do you mean by all of this? That young woman is an honored guest of Karamina and you barely gave her the time of day. You had 30 minutes to spend with her and you took two. Jocko, you don't understand. I... No, sir, you don't understand. Jocko moved in closer. Ladin, I am your friend, but I am also your manager. Yes, as a friend, I would say that I want to know what is happening inside that head of yours. As a friend, I would say, let's go get a drink and talk about what you just did back there. But this is not the kind of event you bring your friends to. This is where someone like you needs a professional like me. What you did back there was... was... Ladin could only watch, stunned, as Jocko laid into him so fiercely. Well, it was rude, he finally concluded. And rudeness does not go away in this world. Jocko straightened back up and ran a trembling middle-aged hand through his wavy brown hair. Now, as your manager and apparent social conscience, I must insist that we go back to that young lady and make this right. Have I made myself clear? Jocko, listen to me. I saw her, Ladin said. She's here. Well, of course she's here. You left her holding a drink that she wouldn't have had if I hadn't gotten it for her. No, Kimber, Ladin said. Jocko froze, his face contorted in disappointment and confusion. Sir, please, return to Gisela with me. After we repair interstellar relations with her, I will entertain any conversation you wish to have about the unrequited affair you might have had with this almost mythical Kimber, I promise. You don't understand, Jocko. She's here, I mean really here. I need a directory. You can't be serious, Jocko replied with incredulity. She's on Earth, Ladin. She can't be here. Non-union planets do not participate in the parade. But I saw her just before you called me in to visit with, uh, uh, what's her name? Gisela, Jocko said sternly. I need a directory of brides just to see. Then I'll go back. Jocko took a deep breath and steadied his frustration with his young patron. I'll tell you what, sir. If you go back and entertain Gisela for the remaining... He looked at his chronometer on the underside of his wrist. 24 minutes that you have with her, I will find a directory, look to see if your Kimber is indeed here, and I will track her down for you, Jocko pleaded. Ladin mulled over the offer. Okay, he said, dissatisfied but willing to comply. I'm trusting you, Jocko. And I you, sir, Jocko replied. Ladin nodded and the two men marched back to the Sufan atrium. Having played off Ladin's previous and rather expedited exit as the social anxiety of a recluse, and making sure his patron and his patron's prospective bride were seated and conversing, Jocko went to fulfill his promise. Directories were placed in various easy-to-access podiums around the arena. Ladin had unknowingly passed two of them on his exit from the atrium, and Jocko chose one an inconspicuous distance from the atrium. He didn't want to risk any suspicion on Gisela's part. Her feelings were paramount in this situation. Jocko had significant doubt that Ladin's dream girl would be anywhere within 300 light years of Karamina, but a promise was a promise. Swiping the monitor clean of its parade pageantry, he brought up a search field and typed in the name Malik. A list of names appeared, and there were even more than he expected, so he narrowed his search to the most recent parade, and one name came up. He sighed heavily in disbelief as he stared at the one name he feared seeing the most. He hated being wrong, especially in this matter. He ran his hand through his hair again, because in his mind, a stressful evening had just gotten far worse. Jocko tapped the screen and the image of a woman popped up. There was no doubt about her identity, as he had seen pictures of her many times. 
There was no need to delve into the information files. He had seen enough. Kimber Malik was the daughter of Hazan Malik, and the Sultan was no doubt seeking a fortune to commandeer since trade relations galaxy-wide had dried up. Jocko closed out the screen and walked back to the atrium. Peering back through the archway, he saw a wide smile on Gisela's face. For a moment, he doubted that she was actually talking to Ladin, but his nerves calmed when he saw an equally sincere expression of enjoyment in Ladin's eyes. It had only been a few minutes. Jocko wasn't naive enough to think that Ladin had suddenly forgotten about Kimber. He was simply relieved that his employer was bright enough to know when to play the game and when to forfeit. Jocko turned back to face the vastness of the arena. He wanted to find her, find where Kimber was. It would be easier that way. Beyond the runway, situated in a wide semicircle, was a set of twelve atriums exactly like and including Gisela's. Above them were three levels of landings where those not directly involved in the parade could observe and enjoy themselves. Gisela was in the very last atrium. If Jocko started at the first one, by the time he had seen all of the prospective brides, Ladin's time with Gisela would be concluded. It would probably take him that much time to build up his nerve to break his promise and lie to his friend. The first three atriums were mostly the honored brides, guests of the wealthiest systems and planets in the Galactic Union. Jocko's examination of those kiosks was cursory at best. She would not be one of those. Kimber was not on any of the kiosks in the fourth or fifth atriums either. Jocko looked at his chronometer. He worried there wasn't enough time. Apart from the honored guests, the order of the brides in the atrium was determined on a first-come, first-served basis. Gisela had been the absolute last bride to register. He wondered how late Malik would have registered. Jocko took a chance and skipped to the eighth atrium. Bingo. Not only did he see her kiosk, he saw the girl herself, and she was as radiant and beautiful as his master had always stated. Her burgundy hair was long and wound into large curls that fell past her shoulders. The eye and lip shades she wore glistened and sparkled in the flattering lights of the atrium, and her dress was revealing but tasteful. If Ladin knew there was only a single atrium dividing them, Jocko feared the repercussions of that dangerous bit of information. Walking into the atrium, Jocko perused the kiosks, feigning casualness, but keeping an eye on Kimber. She was engaged in conversation with not one young prince, but three at once. It was apparent she was willing to violate time constraints and entertain them all for as long as they would stay. The Sultan was truly desperate. The conversation was frivolous at best, so Jocko checked his chronometer one more time before walking back to his master. What took so long? Ladin greeted him. Apparently the conversation wasn't as enjoyable as to last the entire 30 minutes. My apologies, sir. I didn't want to intrude as the proverbial third wheel. Oh, right, Ladin said distractedly. Well, is she here? Did you find her? His eagerness was almost nauseating. Before I answer that, did you repair relations with Gisela? Was she understanding of your condition? Yeah, she was fine. Nice girl. Ladin replied, brushing aside any attempt by Jocko to steer the conversation away from the desired target. What did you find out? Was that her? Jocko stared at Ladin for a moment. It was her, wasn't it? She's here? Ladin looked around quickly. Where is she? Is she in one of these atrium things? He pointed to the adjacent archways and turned to walk toward them, but Jocko grabbed him. Sir, he said, I'm afraid I have to disappoint you. Ladin looked bewildered. It wasn't her? He asked, a nearly heartbroken frown on his face. Jocko closed his eyes and shook his head. You're kidding. I could have sworn. I'm terribly sorry, sir, but you knew it was a long shot. She represents humanity, and humans just aren't appreciated in certain parts of the galaxy. Ladin contorted his lips in disappointment. I must be losing my mind, 
he said more to himself than to Jocko, but Jocko heard it all the same. No, sir, you're just a little lost in love. Come, let me get you home. Lydon didn't say anything, but slowly began trudging back toward the entry to the arena. In his hand, he held a micro data mod. On it, an image of Gisela's face smiled out as he flipped it over and over in his fingertips. He had originally planned to discard it, but he held on to it. Chaco lagged a step behind his master. His lie pained him, but it was necessary. It was Zade's will at work, and it was for Ladin's own good. As they approached the exit, the siren girl bedecked in pink and green jewels greeted them exuberantly. Mr. Basra, leaving so soon? Ladin nodded and smiled as sincerely as he could. Was your visit satisfactory? The girl asked. Yes, it was a, a great time, Ladin replied, forcing another smile. I'm glad to hear that, the girl said. Will you be joining us again tomorrow night for the pageant? Ladin looked at the micromod screen in his hand and examined the image of Gisela's beaming smile. He nodded and met the eyes of the lovely siren girl again. Yes, I think I will, he said, and slid the mod, no bigger than a business card, into his coat pocket. Wonderful, Mr. Basra. Please have a lovely evening, and we look forward to seeing you here tomorrow night for the pageant. Thank you. I do too, he said, and walked back out into the foyer. I'll summon the transport, sir, Jocko said cautiously. Ladin didn't respond. Jocko walked past his employer and headed outside to the valets. As Ladin watched beautifully dressed people move through the foyer and into the arena, he had one simple thought. Tomorrow he would put Kimber and Earth behind him forever. Zade was right. The morning of the pageant was spent in the den. In his hands, Ladin held a device he hadn't used since Zade left, because he never wanted to use it again. He had promised himself and Zade as much, but he contemplated one final request. He wanted to use the lamp one last time to erase Kimber from his life forever. He wanted nothing of her. No records, pictures, nothing. His new life was to be with Gisela. He wanted no extra baggage. At least he thought it more pragmatic. Jeannie, you there? he asked, and the plain text appeared swiftly on the data screen. Hello, Ladin. What do you desire? Ladin stared at the familiar words. I want Simic back, he said, knowing full well the answer he would receive. Unable to comply. Can you make Kimber fall in love with me? Unable to comply. That's what I thought, he said as he dragged his fingers along the edges of the mod and thought about what it would mean to erase Kimber completely. As the sun reached its apex in the sky, the door chime rang. Come in, Jocko, Ladin said miserably. He had no idea of Jocko's deception the night before, but for Jocko it ate at him like a cancer. All he really wanted was for this day to be over. Mr. Basra, I'm sorry to intrude, but I need to have you fitted, Jocko said. Ladin turned with a single eyebrow raised in apprehensive inquiry. For what? For your pageant suit, sir? My what? Ladin demanded already disgusted. Your pageant suit, Jocko replied. It is customary to wear a suit that resembles the culture of your bride. Since Gisela is Crumanian, you should wear a high-collared beige or brown three-quarter jacket with, I regret to say, magenta trousers. Ladin rolled his eyes. Don't they wear grays and blacks like everyone else in the galaxy? I'm afraid not, sir, and it must be fitted. She'll know if it's not. Ladin shook his head. Fine he mumbled as he rose from his chair and removed his robe, revealing his bare chest and almost scrawny torso. Go ahead, he said, disheartened, as he raised his arms straight out to his sides. Jocko approached with a white measuring tape and a micro data mod. What time do we need to be there? 
Ladin asked as Jocko worked his way around every measurable part of Ladin's upper body. Ladin's question had been foremost in Jocko's mind since he told Ladin there was no Kimber. He had to time their arrival just right. Kimber would likely be presented an hour, maybe two, before Gisela based on their positions in the atriums, but the timing was critical. There was little room for error. The pageant starts in one hour and will continue until midnight. Because Gisela was a late registry, she will be in the final hour. Jocko paused deliberately to sell his nonchalance. I recommend we arrive closer to the penultimate daytime hour. You wouldn't want to have to suffer through the other presentations. It can be long and tedious, and, if I may offer my opinion, rather boring. He looked slowly up at Ladin to see if he had taken the bait. There was no definitive sign. Jocko continued measuring Ladin in silence as he moved from the torso to the lower extremities. I'll get this to you as soon as the tailor is finished, Jocko said, having concluded his task by entering the information into the micromod. Ladin walked toward his closet. How long? he asked, breaking his pensive quietude. The suit is already made, it just needs to be adjusted. I'd say an hour? Good, Ladin said. Let me know as soon as it's in. Yes, sir, Jocko replied. Ladin's demeanor was unsettling. Jocko felt insecure in his deception, but he couldn't reveal it. It wasn't his place to do so. In the end, it wasn't his decision. It was Zade's. So that was chapters 18 and 19. 18 and 19 represent what was going to be sort of the second book in this entire series. Um, if you remember from the last podcast, I was going to end the book. If it was a middle grade book, you know, if I decided that it was going to end at the end of the first, the last chapter, because that sort of represents a change in Latin. And so what we see in chapter 18 is how Latin, we have this sort of two year gap. Okay, and this was sort of a cheat for me. Um, I I didn't want to have to go through, you know, the the. I just wanted to mention the misery that Lydon had been feeling. I wanted to allude to a couple of things, so I want to get to a few devices I used in this chapter um, to sort of tell the story that we missed over the last two years. So let's get into that. First, there's a new character, um, Jocko. Jocko is the 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 super loyal butler essentially um this is kind of like the uh the alfred to bruce wayne or or uh even sort of the jacopo to the count of monte cristo um he's an amalgam of a bunch of different personalities i didn't want just the servant side to this guy i wanted the best friend side i wanted you to be convinced as a reader I want you to be convinced that he was Ladin's friend in this whole thing. And so Jocko is is Ladin's new sidekick, sort of. He's the Robin to Ladin's Batman, but more of the uh, smarter sidekick to the flawed hero, um, if you will. And, and, and so that's what I was going for with Jocko's character. Um, so that's Jocko. So that's the first thing that's really new. Um, in this, and I, and I think the first word of this of chapter eighteen was Jocko. 
And there are a couple of things that are really important here to know that how do we know he's loyal? Um, because it says he knows everything about Latin. He knows everything about the past, what he's hiding. And so, and he's not going to tell anybody. And you, I hope that that comes across. I feel like with my beta readers and as I teach this book to students, everybody sort of gets that gist that this guy's loyal. And there's, you know, it's like they don't feel uh, like this guy will betray Latin. Next, we have a new world. There's a new planet, this planet of Karamina. And it's no secret. I said this, uh, uh, maybe I didn't say it in the acknowledgments, but um, Karamina is actually my fifth child's name, my youngest child. Her name is Karamina. And I love the name so much. We made that up. Uh, my wife and I, we made that up. Uh, and I'll just tell you this fun story. I think this is a fun story, how we came up with this name and, and why I think it's so beautiful and why I used it as the name of the planet. So when we found out we were pregnant with our fifth child, um, we had sort of gone the route of weird names for our kids to normal names. And now it was to find it was time to come up with one, to make one up. So we started, our first child's name was Arwen, named after Arwen in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and then we have Eleanor, who we named after Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, and then we have Jack, who is actually John Jr. He's my mini-me. We call him Jack. Um, that's also another naming tradition. Then we have Alice. Alice is also named after a literary character in some ways, but we just, my wife and I just love the name Alice. Um, she's sort of Alice in Wonderland. And then we have number five. Um, and so I remember we were lying in bed, my wife and I, trying to come up with names for this fifth child. And the bummer about being a teacher is that you get to know a lot of kids with a lot of names. And a lot of times those names, even if you thought it was a nice name before, the kid's personality can sort of ruin names for you as a teacher. And so we decided we needed to make one up that wasn't linked to somebody we knew because we didn't want to call her, you know, something like Mackenzie or Skylar and just always think of all the Mackenzies and Skylers that we knew. And uh, my wife had recently read Dracula and she loved the book. She found it intriguing and she's not a, she's not a traditional horror literature reader, but she liked the book and she told me all about it. And so I read the book Dracula for the first time in my life as an adult. And... Um, there was a name in there that she loved. My wife loved the name Mina uh, because Wilhelmina uh, Harker, because in, in Dracula, Wilhelmina Harker is the wife of Jonathan Harker, who is obviously one of the, the main characters of the book. He writes his wife these letters and he writes them to my dearest Mina or dear Mina. And we were thinking about that. And, uh, and I lived in Italy. I served a mission, um, for the LDS church in Italy uh, for two years. And uh, the way you address a letter, like a dear, dear uh, Mina, is kata, means dear, you know, kata. And so I just said, what about kata Mina? And my wife looked at me and she's like, oh, I love it. And uh, so it means dear Mina. So we can tell people that we named her after the book Dracula <laughs> um, after this, you know, traditional vampire horror book. And, uh, but we call her Karamina and we both love it. So we call her Mina for short. She's our little Mina and she's six years old right now. And she is just precocious as all get out. 
Um, so our dear Mina, our Karamina, um, Karamina is our fifth child. And I love that name so much. I wanted to name a planet after it in this book because I usually name characters after family members. If you've read my Immortal Light series, nearly every character in there comes from close family relations. If it's not my brothers and sisters or my children, it's my nieces and nephews. And there are a lot of nieces and nephews in those books as well, because there are a lot of characters in there. So I wanted to name a planet after one of my children this time. So so now we get into world building. Okay, so I've named this planet. We get into world building. And Mina was really little when I wrote this. Um, she was tiny. And so I, she was beautiful, and I wanted this planet to be beautiful, and, and, and I wanted it to be like a perfect little jewel in the galaxy. And so I had to build this world that was sort of a, a refuge uh, from the rest of the galaxy, an opulent planet that had specific rules. And, and, and on the surface, it looks like it's really inviting and really welcoming. But, you know, they have, in order to keep their planet the way it is, they have to have some sort of, I mean, draconian laws, you know. Um, and they have to be really selective about who they allow in. And, and it's all the horrible things about that we talk about our world. But this planet, that's that's what they are. They, they only allow certain people with, you know, certain prestige and certain, uh, and they have to follow certain rules. Um, and in this case, they have to be married, um, because this is a very prudish society and, um, they don't, they don't stand for, um, anything that violates their morality. So it's, you know, it's, it's not a place just anybody could live, but it is a place to hide out. And that's one reason why I made it such an exclusive place to live is because I wanted it to be not desirable for people to just go and live there and to have restrictions because Laden had to get away. He had to get away from Malik and he had to go to a place where Malik could not show his face. So why not the opulent jewel in the galaxy, the opulent, the planet that that was nothing but prestige and, and exclusion and sort of snooty arrogance. So that's where that's what Karamina is. Um, the planet. And so I had to build this world based on just that. And, and the thing is I needed to make Ladin uncomfortable there. This is not his place. He's a, he was, he grew up on the streets. He's not used to being rich and be surrounded by, by elegance and by, you know, fine things. So, so in this world, Ladin totally doesn't belong and he feels it in every fiber of his being, so to speak. So now the trouble I find with world building is that it is very tedious, or it can be very tedious. And if you don't do it convincingly enough, your reader's going to know, and they're going to want to put the book down. And as far as I can tell, I, I don't even know. I don't even know if this is if it if I sell this well enough. If the world building in here, the 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 sort of difference between Earth and Karamina, if it's obvious, or if it just sounds like you're going from a poor city to a rich city. Um, you know, and so if, if I don't sell it well enough, it's not going to be convincing and people are not going to want to keep reading. Readers can see through the sort of BS of, of an author, uh, when they're just writing something to get it on the page and to just be good enough. Um, so the tedium of world building can be kind of frustrating. And to me, it is frustrating. And when I get writer's block, 
it's usually because I have to do one of these, these chapters or these moments where I have to create something. And it's not just a place. It can also be a person. If I need to have a character in, in, a, in somebody's life, in the book, and they have to play a specific role, I have to set that up convincingly. I have to make sure that that character is a convincing good guy or a convincing bad guy or a convincing friend. Okay, so, so, so when you're creating a character, it's just as important as creating a new world. It has to be convincing to the reader or they're not going to keep reading. And I've come across books like this where somebody was not convincing enough. I'm like, I don't buy it. And, and you know, some people I talk to about this, it, it might be their favorite book, but they get frustrated with me because I didn't buy it. I don't buy that that person is supposed to be that relationship to the protagonist. It wasn't convincing enough. So, so when it comes to world building, when it comes to character building, you got to make sure it's convincing. And how do you do that? Well, I mean, I, I, I've been teaching writing long enough and I've been writing long enough to know that, um, you have to throw in details. You have to throw in specific details that tell you, that tell the reader what is true about this place or this person. You have to tell, give them specific details. If it's a place, describe it. This is where when you're in middle school and high school and they're like, we're going to do descriptive writing today. You need to pay attention. Uh, because descriptive writing paints the picture, paints the setting. And as much as a setting might not seem important, it is part of that convincing nature of the book. You have to have specific details. Explain what it looks like. Explain what the sky looks like. Explain what the landscape looks like. What do the buildings look like? What are the cars like? What are the vehicles? You know, what are all the elements of this thing? What do they look like visually? Okay, if you're describing a, a character, if you're creating a character... This gets really tricky because you're introducing a person to a story, a person who had a past that that existed before this story started, that existed before they were introduced in this book. And now you have to say this person's past is this and this is how they fit here without writing a whole other book about them. You have to lay it down. And with Jocko, I never did that specifically because I wanted to focus on his relationship. It's, it doesn't matter who he was or where he came from. Um, and I know that I have to address that in a later book. All I cared about right now is that the reader believed he was loyal to Latin. Okay. So you have to find a way if you're building a character to put in those specific details, those necessary details about the person's identity and their past that make it convincing that they belong in this story. Okay. So that's, that's where I was with these two chapters, creating new characters in the middle of a book, creating a new world in the middle of a book. It was a challenge. I don't even know if I pulled it off. You might read it. You might hear this and go, you didn't pull it off, but you know, that's, that's just where I'm at as a writer. So, Oh, and I almost forgot the parade of brides. So you were probably listening to that wondering what in the heck is this, this, seemingly barbaric thing where women are paraded like cattle? Well, I'm not going to answer that this week. I'm going to answer that next week. Um, once the parade is done, once that whole part of the story is over, I'm going to explain to you where that came from and uh, and why. And why that was necessary. Oh, the injustices and oppressions. Um, you're going to have to hang on to that for one more week. Anyway, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Once again, remember, go to 
Audible. You got to get Audible. If you love listening to podcasts, if you love listening to books, if you love listening to news, if you love listening to uh, stage plays, if you love listening to anything that can be recorded and played, Audible's got it. Okay, They have thousands of things in their collection. Um, go to audibletrial.com slash podcast to get your free trial. Okay, It's a free trial. They give you stuff for free that you get to keep forever in this free trial. So that's audibletrial.com slash podcast. And remember, my books are found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere that sells paperbacks. So thank you so much for listening. Remember, be good. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is written, produced, and edited by me, John D. Sperry. Additional music and sound effects are provided by EpidemicSound.com. The John D. Sperry theme song is Abstraction by Talent Studio. This podcast is a John D. Sperry production, copyright 2020.